great. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O God, by the leading of a star, you manifested your only Son to the peoples of the earth. Lead us who now know you by faith to your presence, where we may see your glory face to face through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Well, welcome back and Happy New Year to you. Um, it's good to be back. Um, it's been some time, it seems, since we last gathered. But for those of you who have forgotten, we are taking a look at St. Paul's Epistle to the Ephesians. We are in Ephesians chapter 4, and if you have your Bibles, or if you have that on your cell phone, you can go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look at the later section of this chapter, but we are actually going to start at verse 1. Since we haven't been together, you have to remember that Paul was writing letters here, and one thought flows into the next, and sometimes when you jump into the middle of something, not remembering the context, remembering where we were, uh, you can misunderstand what the author is trying to say. So we're going to take a look at chapter 4, and we're going to begin at verse 1. We're going to go quickly through this first part, and we're going to get to the section that I really want to focus on today, but we need to have some context. So Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, St. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the truth and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We said this section of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians is very important because Paul is talking about spiritual gifts here. And this is an important topic. In fact, we are actually beginning a series. Uh, Frenchie Richards, I see you out there, and uh, Andrew O'Dell and Brian McGreevy. When does that class start? It is a weekend workshop. Next weekend. Next weekend. On, on spiritual gifts. Uh, you'll notice that in the beginning of this epistle, Paul has been talking about some heavy doctrine here. Uh, we said that the epistle to the Ephesians really is, it's one of Paul's shorter epistles, and yet, nevertheless, it contains some of the greatest of the Christian doctrines. It's one of the most 
comprehensive of all of his letters in this respect. Now, he doesn't go into these great doctrines in detail in the way that he does in some of his weightier letters, like 1st and 2nd Corinthians, or as he does in Romans, but nevertheless, they're almost all here. Uh, Paul talks about the human condition of how we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins. He talks about how God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive even when we were dead. He talks about the fact that we have been reborn to a living hope. All of these things are there in the epistle to the Ephesians. But Paul also goes on to make it very clear that you and I have not just been saved from something, from judgment or from wrath or from death, we have also been saved what? For something. He said for good works, and that is what he's going to go on to talk about. It is not just a matter of getting your ticket punched and going to heaven when you die. God has called us. Salvation is not just a future hope. Salvation is something that you and I can realize in the here and now, and it is something that you and I are expected to put into practice, to put to work. Jesus made this point very clear. He said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? That is our goal. Our goal is to be salt in the world, to help facilitate healing to stem the tide of moral and spiritual decay. We are called to be a light in a darkened environment. And if we don't do that, then the question is, what good are we? Now, that's the subject that Paul turns to at this point in Ephesians chapter 4. He wants us to understand that we have a job to do in the world. We are to be little Christ. That's what the word Christian means, incidentally, a Christ one, a little Christ. That's what we are called to be in the world, to follow the example of our Lord and of our Savior. Now, how can we do that? Because we are, of course, frail, fallen, weak human beings. How in the world can we do that? Well, that's why Paul talks about spiritual gifts here. And he uses, we said, a very interesting image for it. Paul says we are a body. And as with a body, there is unity, but there is also diversity. It's one body, Paul says, but as with any body, it has many parts. Uh, this means, of course, and we pointed this out the last time we were together, that what Paul is referring to is something here that is organic. He is not referring to a machine. Every part is essential. We said that um, Eli Whitney, who was a New England tinkerer and inventor, revolutionized agriculture in America with the invention of the what? The cotton gin. That's what everybody remembers Eli Whitney for. Uh, but actually, he ran an arms factory in New England. And one of the things that he helped to do is not only revolutionize agriculture, but also revolutionize industry with the introduction of what were known as interchangeable parts. He's responsible for Lowe's and uh, Home Depot and all of those things. You know, if you had a gun and your fire lock broke, what did you do? Well, you couldn't go and buy a part for it. You couldn't get on Amazon and order a part. You had to go to a gunsmith, and he had to actually make a part that fit your gun specifically. But Eli Whitney invented these things called interchangeable parts. Now you could just go and pick up a part. and Whatever the part was, it would fit your gun if he had manufactured it. And that revolutionized industry. We're common. We're familiar with that very much today. We have that sort of thing. But it was, it was revolutionary in that day. That's not the image that Paul uses here. As though if one person fails to do their task, well, it doesn't matter because we can just get another person and we can change this person out and plug this other person in like some sort of interchangeable part. That's not the case at all. No, each body is unique. Your body is unique. 
And oftentimes when we do transplants, when doctors do transplants, whether it's a, a lung transplant or a kidney transplant or whatever it may be, oftentimes the body goes through a process of what? Rejection. You oftentimes have to have drugs in order to accommodate the body and to accommodate this new organ. It's because your organs are unique. And this is something that is foreign. Well, that's the way that Paul uses the image of the church. You and I are parts of a body, and each part is essential. And we simply can't say, well, if you don't do your part, we can get somebody else who can. That's not it at all. We each have a part to play, and that part is very important if the body is to function well. So the unity is the fact that we are a body. The diversity is that each body has different parts, and each part is absolutely essential. So in order for the body to work together, Paul says what God does is he gives us gifts. He uniquely gifts each and every one of us, just as each part of the body has a function to play. And one part of the body can't say, well, I'm more important than you are. Um, this is another image that Paul uses elsewhere. He talks about the smallest member of the body being just as important as some of the more important members. And we talked about this. You get up in the middle of the night at 3 o'clock in the morning to use the bathroom, and you stub your little toe on the corner of the bedpost. You don't turn around and say, well, it's just the little toe. The fact that you've just woken your wife up, the fact that you've just called on God in the middle of the night is an indicator of the fact that the toe, while it is the smallest part of the body, is nevertheless very important. Where would we be without a posable thumb, for example? So each part of the body has a part to play. And what God does is he uniquely gifts us with these various parts, these spiritual gifts. And that's what Paul talks about in verses 9 and following. Now he uses a very interesting image here for it. We said it's the image of a victor. In the ancient world, it was not uncommon when somebody conquered, a leader conquered a foreign nation, what he would do is when he went into the capital city, he would go in in a triumphal procession. That was the idea, a classic painting of it here. You can see the victor there with a laurel crown on his forehead, and you can see that there are lutes and trumpets going before him announcing his way. There are people carrying in all of the gifts, the prizes of war, the things that have been captured. And it was not uncommon for a conquering hero then to distribute those gifts among particularly among his chief lieutenants, those who had assisted him. Well, Paul uses that same image for what God has done with the church. In Christ Jesus, he has triumphed. He has triumphed over what? He has triumphed over sin and death and the adversary, the devil. And he is now, having been conquered, he distributes, we're told, gifts to his subjects. So that's the image here, a conquering hero who then distributes gifts to his subjects, and he talks about what some of those gifts are. He said some were called to be apostles and prophets. We talked about this. We said the apostles and the prophets were primarily a gift for the early church. We don't have apostles in this sense today. Now, I know as Anglicans we speak of apostolic succession and so forth, and there is a sense in which the bishop's office is to carry on the apostolic role, to guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to us. But we don't have apostles in the same sense that Peter and James and John and Paul were apostles today. But we do have prophets, not prophets in the sense that the Old Testament prophets or in the sense that John the Baptist was a prophet, but we have prophets in the sense that we have teachers. And that's why Paul goes on to say we have apostles and prophets, a gift for the early church. 
We have a more sure legacy today rather than the apostles. We have the word of God. We have their word. And that's described as a more certain word. But he says he also gave evangelists. We said evangelists were people like Billy Graham, Louis Palau, Bishop Festo Coventry. These were people who have a special gift for being able to impart the message of the gospel to others in such a way that they are convicted and they respond to it. So there were gifts of apostles and prophets, evangelists. Paul went on also to mention pastors and teachers. And in many respects, we said this is the most important role in the church today. We need pastors and we need teachers. Those who are able to take the word of God, the apostolic witness, and impart it to us in a way that we can understand it. John Stott, in his book, God's New Society, put it this way. He said, nothing is more necessary for the building up of God's church in every age than an ample supply of God-gifted teachers. It is teaching which builds up the church. It is teachers who are needed most. So all of these things have been given to the church. Now, this is not an exhaustive list, and Paul makes that point very clear. If you want to see what the whole picture of spiritual gifts are, you need to turn to other places like 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Romans chapter 12. As I said, Ephesians is a short course in theology centered on the church. So all of the doctrines are here, but they are not expanded. This is the Reader's Digest condensed version of it. If you want to get the whole picture of what spiritual gifts are really all about, you need to look at what Paul says in those other letters. But nevertheless, his point is that the church has been given gifts, and if you're a Christian today, that means that you have at least one of them. They're spiritual gifts. They are Christ's gifts imparted to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you are a Christian, what you are saying is that God the Holy Spirit resides within you. And if he resides within you, then his gifts reside within you as well. Each Christian has at least one spiritual gift. That's the reason for this seminar on Saturday. It's because we each have a job to play in the body of Christ. And so if you want to know what your role is, I don't want to say your job because it's not really a job. It's a calling. It's a vocation. God blesses us with the opportunity to participate in his work. And if you want to know what your role is, what role you have to play in this body, in the unity of this great body, then you need to know what your spiritual gifts are. And if you're a believer, you've got them. And that's what this seminar is designed to do, to help you discern what those spiritual gifts are so that you can find your place within the body of Christ here at St. Philip's. So, two final thoughts. These are Christ's gifts. They are gifts, not talents. Uh, many of you are talented people, but gifts are something else. They are things specifically given to us by Christ for the upbuilding of the body of Christ, for the glory of his name, and for the spread of his kingdom. Each one has one. They are given for the common good. If the body is to be well, all must exercise their gifts. And that brings us really to what I want to focus on today. That if everyone is using their gifts, then they will fulfill the church's purpose in the world. They will fulfill the church's purpose in the world. What is the church's purpose? Well, that's what Paul turns to next. It reminds me of a story that Bishop Lawrence told some years ago when he first became bishop. He did a parish retreat for us um, at Canuga when I was the rector of St. Helena's in Beaufort. And he started off by telling a story that I've never forgotten. It was a story about a um, young man, uh, we'll say he was a millennial, uh, living in Manchester, England. 
and he was riding a motorcycle, and he pulled up behind a lady in Manchester, England, who had pulled her car up to the curb, and she had opened the boot, and she was taking something out, and she was going into this old church. Now, this is an ancient church. You know, I, I know we think we're old here uh, at St. Philip's. But, you know, in England, you know, 1680, you're, you're the new kid on the block in, in many respects. Uh, this church in Manchester was probably not that old, but it was an old church, and, um, you know, it had that, that weathered look to it. And he pulled up, and he sees this lady taking something out of her boot of the car and heading into the church, and he stops her, and he says, Hey, lady, tell me, does this church work? That's an interesting question. Does this church work? Now, what was he asking? Well, as a young man and a millennial growing up in Manchester, England, this sort of industrial city, that's the way he talked, and that's how he judged something, whether it was useful or not. Did it work? Because he was familiar with lots of things that didn't work. He was familiar, for example, with television sets that didn't work. He, he was familiar with automobiles that didn't work. He was no doubt familiar with computers and tablets and cell phones that from time to time, what? Don't work. And if they don't work, they're what? They're useless. That's the whole point. They're useless. And so he wanted to know when he drove up behind that lady, taking something out of the boot of her car and heading into this old weather building, he wanted to know, did this church work? If you think about it, that's a pretty good question, isn't it? Does this church work? Does St. Philip's work? Well, in order to answer that question, you've got to ask yourself, what is its purpose? <laughs> what is the purpose of the church? What is it designed or what is it intended to do? You can't say whether it works or not until you understand what it was intended for. And that's what Paul is talking about. He's saying that all of these gifts have been given to the members of the body of Christ that we may attain a sense of unity. Yes, diversity. We each have different personalities. We each have different roles. But we all have a common purpose. And that purpose is so that the church might work. So that the church might work. Now, what is the church's purpose? Well, it depends in large measure upon who you ask. If you ask some people what the church's purpose is, they will turn to Mark chapter 16. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 16. We're going to skip around here a little bit. But in Mark chapter 16, at the very end of this gospel, Jesus gives these final instructions to his disciples. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons, they will speak in tongues, they will pick up serpents in their hands, they will drink deadly poison, and it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So when the Lord Jesus, after he had said this to them, he was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. That's Mark's version. It's the, the shortest version, but it's Mark's version of the Great Commission. And if you ask some people, what is the purpose of the church? What is the church designed to do? They would say, this is the purpose of the church. It is to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creation, making disciples of all men, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy 
Ghost, and lo, we can rest assured, he will be with us always, even unto the end of the age. That's the purpose of the church. And those who emphasize this aspect of the church's function oftentimes describe it as the church militant, the church out there in the world. Onward, Christian soldiers marching as to war. Now, there's no doubt about the fact that evangelism and the Great Commission are a part of the church's mission. Somebody has said that the church exists by mission as a fire exists by burning, and it's absolutely true. A friend of mine likes to say that if you do not have a missionary heart, you only have half the blessing of the gospel. So some would say the purpose of the church is to be an evangelistic agency in the world. Others, however, would emphasize that the purpose of the church in the present day is not so much to do evangelism, not that that's unimportant, but that there are other aspects that Jesus stresses that we should also take a look at. In Matthew chapter 25, for example, if you turn to Matthew chapter 25, we find a slightly different focus. Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 and following. Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave Me food. I was thirsty. And you gave me drink, I was a stranger, and you welcomed me, I was naked, and you clothed me, I was sick, and you visited me, I was in prison, and you came to me. Some would say that is the purpose of the church. Yes, evangelism is important, but what is really important is that we care for the marginalized in society, the least, the last, and the lost, as it's sometimes described. That is what the church should be all about. And Jesus makes it very clear that if we neglect the poor... He will neglect us, there is a sense, that he will turn us out. He says, for I came to you, and you did not feed me. I came to me, and you gave me no drink. You did not clothe me. And they will say to him, when did we see you hungry, or homeless, or naked, and did not? And he said, when you did it not to the least of these, you did it not to me. Well, that's a pretty powerful statement, isn't it? Especially when you walk up King Street in the middle of the height of the shopping season, you see all these people begging on the streets. It convicts you. It pulls at your heart. And I'm not saying there's an easy solution to this. Jesus himself acknowledged that. He said, the poor you will always have with you. But nevertheless, we should have a concern for the poor. And some would say that's the real purpose of the church, is to have a compassion for the poor, for the marginalized, for the needy, and to reach out and help them. That means the church is to be a great social service agency. Others have suggested that in our day and age, living as we do, really in a post-Christian context, living as we do in the 21st century in which there is a great deal of hostility in the Western world against the Christian faith, perhaps that the real purpose of the church in the present day, I mean, nothing is static. The world is always changing. In the present day, perhaps the real purpose of the church is to separate ourselves from the culture. Maybe that is the greatest witness we can do, is not to be in the world, but to withdraw from the world and to set others an example through doing so. Paul in 2 Corinthians writes this, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. 
Or what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. This is exactly what Israel was called to do in the Old Testament. They were called to come out from among them and be separate. Israel was to separate itself from the other peoples of the world. They were not to be like the other peoples. Paul makes this point later on in this very chapter. He says, do not walk as the Gentiles do. So some would argue that in the present day, the real purpose of the church is not to try to do evangelism in the classic sense. It's not even to try to reach out to the poor. The real purpose of the church is to withdraw from the world and care for its own. In the way that the early church did, when the early church was beleaguered, what did it do? It cared for its own in such a way, we're told that none were needy, none were hungry. If anybody had a need, the members of the church sold what they had. They didn't consider anything that they had to be their own. They shared everything in common, and the purpose was to care for one another, bear one another's burdens in such a way that they fulfilled the law of Christ. And what did they do? We're told they provoked the outside world to jealousy. That's what they did. The early pagans used to say, look at these Christians, the way they love one another, the way they care for one another. And it provoked the outside world to such jealousy that we're told daily the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. And so some have suggested, one author by the name of Rob Dreher has written a book, the New York Times bestseller called The Benedict Option, suggesting that that is precisely what the church needs to do. We no longer have, he says, a Christian culture. You've heard me describe it. It's a cut flower culture. And we've been living off of the benefits of a Christian heritage. But we have now severed ourselves from our Christian roots, and you're beginning to see the petals fall. And that's exactly what Rob Dreher has suggested. And he said that the real goal of the church now in the 21st century is to come out from among them and be separate, to create a whole new culture. Why? Because we recognize that cultures cultivate. Cultures produce a particular character. And our culture is producing a particular kind of character. Just look at Washington, D.C., if you don't believe me. Producing all kinds of characters. I think one of the things that's sad about American politics today is that we have a tendency to produce politicians, but we don't produce statesmen. Well, perhaps that has something to do with the cultural context, you see. And so Rob Dreher says that perhaps what we should do is withdraw and produce a new kind of culture that produces a new kind of person. Now, all of those are answers to this question, what is the church's purpose? And they're all good answers. But the way Paul talks about it here in Ephesians, going back now to Ephesians chapter 4, is that those things are not really the church's purpose. Those are really what you might call the church's function. But function and purpose are not necessarily the same thing. Purpose, you see, is a more encompassing, a more comprehensive word than function. Function are the things that we do in order to achieve or to show evidence of our purpose. So what is the purpose as Paul sees it here in Ephesians? Well, if you carry through this image of the body, because that's how he describes the church, not as a machine, but as a body, then the purpose of the body is to do what? It is to mature. 
It is to mature. It is to reach a level of spiritual maturity. Listen again to the way that Paul describes it here in Ephesians chapter 4. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Until, verse 13, we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be what? Children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. There it is. You see, Paul talks about it. To achieve mature manhood. That's the language of growing up. So that we may no longer be what? Children. That we may grow up. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way. That's the real purpose of the Christian life. It's for you and for me to grow up. You know, incidentally, this is Paul's real recipe for sanctification. If we are to become like Christ, Christ Christ-like, little Christ, that means we are to grow up into Him. How do you do that? How many of you have tried to be like Christ and it ain't working out for you? (laughs) It's not always easy, is it? It's it's, it's difficult. What's, What's Paul's answer to this? Paul's answer to this is really very simple. He said, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, this is in Romans, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Which is to say, salvation and Christ-likeness begins in the mind, with the transformation of the mind. I think one of the great tragedies of the present day is that we have lost a Christian worldview. We no longer have the ability to think as Christians. A wonderful book the clergy and I have been talking about, written some years ago by an English priest by the name of Harry Blamires called The Christian Mind. And in that book, Harry Blamires makes the point that we still have a Christian ethic. We still have a Christian ethic in the world. We, we even have a Christian morality in the world. What we don't have is a Christian mind, the ability to think Christianly as Christ thought. But Paul says that's really where salvation begins. When you recognize you are no longer what you once were. Reckon yourselves dead to the world and alive in Christ. That's the way Paul says it. Recognize you can't go back. Now, we want to go back, don't we? You know, I I admit, I was at a wedding last night, and some people took some pictures, and then they forwarded them to me. And I looked at them, and I thought, oh, Lord. What has happened to me? That is not the way I see myself. I couldn't believe how old I had gotten. We all want to go back, but we can't go back, can we? Nobody can go back and be what they once were. The only thing we can do is mature, hopefully gracefully. No pun intended, but gracefully mature. Now, a person may desire, I mean, it's one of those funny things about life. When you are a teenager, 
you cannot wait until you're 15 or 16. You, you just can't wait to get older. Why? So that you can drive a car. Now, I understand there's a whole generation not particularly interested in that sort of thing, but my generation, that was freedom. So everybody wanted to drive a car. And then, when you got 16, you were driving a car, then you couldn't wait to be 18 or 21 so that you could what? So that you could drink. You had the freedom to drink, you see, and not clandestinely. So that's what you were hoping for. Oh, I can't wait until I'm 21. And then when you're 21, you cannot wait to get out of what? Out of college, into the real world. And so you're 23, and you're out there in the real world, and then all of a sudden, reality begins to set in, and you <laughs> sort of wish you were 15 again, and you didn't have to worry about all that stuff. And that's the way it is for us, isn't it? It's kind of ironic. But what happens when a person who has reached adulthood, at least the legal age, acts like a child, what do we say to them? Grow up. Now we understand their desire to go back to those simpler times, but the reason why we tell them to grow up is why? Because they can't. So you can't go back. This is who you are now. And that's what Paul is saying. You might as well take that into consideration. You might as well realize that you can't go back to the way you were. The only thing you can do is grow, mature. That's Paul's recipe for sanctification. He says, you were once dead in your trespasses and in your sins. You have been made alive in Christ. You are a new creation. Put off the old way. Put on the new way. Grow up. That's the purpose of the church. It's that its people might attain maturity. And if we are mature believers, we will exercise our spiritual gifts. And if we are exercising our spiritual gifts, that will be evident and manifest in the function, in the evangelism, in the care for the sick, the needy, the poor. It will be evident in the fact that we are shining as lights in a darkened environment. And that we work. And that we work. See, that's the point. That's the purpose. It's for you and I to grow up. Folks, we can't go back to the way it was. We no longer belong to the world. We now belong to Christ. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, you might as well come to terms with that. You can no longer act like a child. Paul is saying it's time to grow up. And so spiritual gifts have been given to the church so that we will grow up, so that we will no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. You know, children are wonderful, and they're wonderful to have around. I love little children. I do. But I confess, I sometimes love them in small doses, because they're at least a couple of things about children that's pretty difficult. The first thing about little children is that they are easily distracted. You ever notice that about little children? It's easy. Now, if you're a grandparent, and I see some grandparents up here laughing, of course that's a good thing, because you can easily distract them if they're doing something they shouldn't. But the problem is if you're trying to teach them something, if you're trying to instill something in them, they are easily distracted, and it can be very difficult and very frustrating. So, so we recognize that. The other thing about little children that can be frustrating is that they're gullible. 
They're easily taken in. You can fool them. I used to do this little magic trick with my kids where I would stick a straw in my ear and pull it out my mouth. That was a magic trick. Of course, I really couldn't do that. I know some of you are thinking, well, there's not that much gray matter up there, perhaps. So perhaps. <laughs> but the kids were absolutely fascinated by that. And I remember doing that when they were five. And when they were 10, they were still asking, Dad, how did you do that? By that point, they had come to the realization that it was a trick, but they couldn't figure out how it was done. Children can be gullible. That's why Paul says we need to grow up. We can no longer be children. We can no longer be easily distracted by the things of this world, and not only easily distracted by the things of this world, but what? Taken in by the world. And that's what Paul is talking about here when he said, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. Now, here's the question. What does maturity look like? What does maturity look like? Well, Paul suggests a couple of things to us here. First of all, he says that we may obtain unity. Now, this is a recurring theme in Paul particularly in this epistle to the Ephesians. He's talking about unity. Concert of action is really what he's talking about here. Unity, all parts working together. But he means, specifically, he says, unity in the faith. That's what he says. That we may obtain the unity of the faith. Now, faith is a word that means something different from what Paul means here. When we think of faith, we think of something that's primarily subjective. But when Paul talks about faith here, he uses the definite article, the faith. So he has very, something very specific in mind here. He wants us to obtain unity and maturity in the faith. What is the faith? Well, I want to suggest to you that when it comes to biblical faith, there are three elements. The first, and I'm going to use three Latin phrases here, and those of you who are Latin scholars, you'll pardon my pronunciation. But there are three elements to biblical faith. The first is what we would call noticia, or noticia. That is a Latin word which basically means content. Paul talks about the faith. He is saying that there is a content, a specific content to Christianity. There are certain doctrines, certain things that we believe. Like the creed, exactly like the creed. That is the reason why every Sunday, immediately following the sermon, we stand and profess our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed. And there are certain things that we say we believe, or certain things that we profess. I believe in God the Father, the Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. I believe in God the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. I believe in the church. I believe in the judgment of the world to come and the life everlasting. Those are things that Christians believe. And Paul would say, if you're going to have a true biblical faith, you need to understand what Christians believe. And, and the creed is a great example because it is the bare minimum that must be believed in order to be a Christian. That's been the way it has been since 325. So that is an element of biblical faith, content. You need to know what Christians believe. If somebody says, well, I don't believe in the Trinity, well, that's fine country, just not a Christian. 
Because this is what Christians believe. Now, we're living in this subjective culture where somebody says, well, I, I can believe what I want to be. And I, can. I had a fellow I knew in, in college, and uh, we got into a conversation one time, and um, I, I discovered that he didn't believe in the divinity of Christ. And he didn't believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And he said, but I'm still a Christian. And I said, no, you're not. And he said, oh, yes, I am. And I said, no, you're not. I said, why do you think you're a Christian? He said, because I just believe I am. <laughs> well, I believe I'm Prince Philip, but it doesn't make me that. <laughs> so you need to understand what Christians believe. There is that element of Christian faith. But there is a second element to Christian faith, and that is a census. Uh, this is a term that means agreement with. It's not a matter of simply knowing what Christians believe. There is also a sense in which you have to agree with it. I had a number of professors, some, I'm sorry to say, even at seminary, who understood very well what the Christian faith taught. But I know one in particular who didn't necessarily subscribe to it. Didn't believe it. And at seminary. Isn't that funny? Well, yes it is, I'm just being facetious, but yes. So another element of the Christian faith is not just knowing what Christians believe, it's being in agreement with it. But there's a third element to Christian faith, and that is fiducia, from which we get our term fiduciary, trust. If you're a Christian, you understand what Christians believe, you agree with what the Christian faith declares, and not only that, you are willing to put feet on your faith. You're willing to put your money where your mouth is. You are, to borrow a phrase, willing to not only talk the talk, but walk the walk. Now that's what Paul means when he talks about attaining maturity in the faith, unity in the faith. He means that the people of God will understand what the Christian faith teaches, they will agree with what the Christian church teaches, and furthermore, they will put their lives into it in such a way that there is unity of spirit and unity and concert of work. That's when you know a church is mature. That's when a church is fulfilling its purpose in the world and its function is evident for all to see. That is when the people understand the faith, they agree to the faith, and they are living out the faith. See, it's not enough to know what we believe if we don't know why we believe it, if we're not in agreement with it, and if it's not evident to those in the world. If you say you believe the Christian faith, you're in agreement with the Christian faith, but you don't live out the Christian faith, what do you call that? Hypocrisy. That's what we call it. Hypocrisy. And by the way, I would go so far as to say this is what a younger generation needs to see from the church more than anything else. They need to see us living out the faith. What many millennials say that they are interested in today is authenticity. And oftentimes what they see in Christians is anything but authenticity. They hear them saying something, but living another way. They say that Jesus Christ is Lord, but they live as though the world is their master. And if that's going to be the way with us, how do we expect to attract anybody? So when Paul speaks about maturity, this is part of what he means. He means unity in the faith, a people who know the faith, they agree with the faith, and they're living out the faith. Can you imagine what that would be like if every person at St. Philip's was doing that? We were all of one mind, 
We all agreed we're different. Goodness knows we're all different. Look at the clergy. We're as different as we could be. And yet we are one in mind. We agree about the purpose and we are doing our best by God's grace to live that out. And when you've got that whole team coming together, my goodness, it doesn't matter who's in the pulpit. You're going to get the message, the word of the Lord. You are going to hear through that under shepherd, the voice of the good shepherd. She doesn't have to be the rector all the time. Thanks be to God. Who wants to listen to him all the time? My wife doesn't want to listen to me all the time, I can tell you. Well, can you imagine if the whole church was like that, if we were all mature, do you think we would make a difference? You better believe it. And that's what Paul is talking about when he talks about the church's purpose is for us to reach to attain maturity in the faith. He also talks about unity in the knowledge of the Son of God. And believe me, I thought I was going to get through all of this today. Because <laughs> I had lots more to say. <laughs> but that is not going to happen. So I am willing to settle today for us just understanding that we are to grow up. I'm willing to settle for the fact that you and I need to come to terms with the fact that we can't go back. We cannot go back to being children. We cannot act childishly. Therefore, we might as well grow up. And what is true physically is also true spiritually. We can't go back to being what we once were. We are new creations. We must now grow up to full maturity in the faith that the church's purpose might be manifest in the world. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for the Apostle Paul and for his word. It is a living word. It speaks to us across time and space. We pray that it may be so engrafted in our hearts that it may bring forth in our lives the fruit of good living. For the honor and glory of your name. Amen. Thank you. See you in church.